we're in our series, uh, Bystander, and um, what we discovered was that a cold case detective said, if there is evidence for God creating the heavens and the earth, that's miraculous. And then everything else that happens after that is a lesser miracle. So we've actually been looking at lesser miracles that Jesus performed in the book of John. Every situation we've looked at, John didn't call them miracles, he called them signs that pointed that Jesus pointed to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. And so every sign that we've looked at, there was a situation where humans could not do anything about it. There was no one on earth who could do anything about it. They needed God to show up and praise God. Jesus did as the Son of God. He did things that no one else could do. So let's look at our picture. Let's review real fast. So over here, you remember he turned water into wine at Cana. May not sound like a big deal to you, but it was a big deal to the wedding people. And it was the first miracle that he performed, and it was in Cana. We'll look at that in just a minute. We'll talk about where that was. The second sign was also in Cana. It's where he healed the the royal official's son. He's in Cana. The royal official's son is in uh, Capernaum, is probably going to die before the royal official can even get back. He doesn't know if Jesus is even going to listen. And Jesus says to him, your son will live. As the royal official goes back home, the servants come to meet him and say, your son lives. And he said, what time did he get well? And they said, one o'clock in the afternoon yesterday. And he said, that's the exact exact time Jesus said, your son will live. Then we went down to Jerusalem and just outside the sheep gate uh, at the pool of Bethsaida, Jesus comes up to a man who's been lame for 38 years. And he says, do you want to get well? Seems like a silly question. But the guy said, of course I want to get well. You know, I've been here. Nobody will put me in the pool. We talked about that whole thing. Jesus healed him. He gets up, picks up his mat, walks up to go worship. And, you know, you, you heard that whole story. If you, by the way, if you haven't, it, all of these sermons are on uh, Facebook or on YouTube. And you can go to our website, which is nlccp.com. It says past messages. You'll see them down there in the right-hand corner. and click on that. Anyway, you can catch up with all this. All right, last week we talked about the most, probably the most famous of all the miracles that Jesus performed, and it was the feeding of the 5,000 plus, because we know it was just 5,000 men, and Jesus did a whole lot of stuff that day. And so let's look real quickly. Here's the, here's a map of the sea, or here's the Sea of Galilee. So this, this is about 13 miles long and seven or eight miles wide in, in some places. And these are the routes that Jesus would typically go. This is Capernaum up here. Down here is Tiberias, where we'll stay this summer in July when we get to go there. But Jesus would often go these routes, we think. And it, ultimately, it doesn't matter where he fed the 5,000. But we think it was over here somewhere because it's near the town of Bethsaida. Um, Philip was Beth, from Bethsaida, and Jesus said to him, where are we going to get food to feed all these people? And so he has them sit down on all this grassy area. He feeds the 5,000. Go ahead to the map if you would. So we're over here in this area. There's Bethsaida, Philip's hometown. There's Capernaum. Over here you see is Nazareth where Jesus was, was raised. And then Cana where he performed at least two of these miracles. Now, last week after feeding the 5,000 plus, there was a movement to make Jesus king. And John tells us this in verse 15 of John chapter 6. Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So he goes up on this mountainous region to pray. What a king he would have been, right? Because this guy could feed the entire nation with a couple of hard biscuits and a couple of goldfish, right? We wouldn't have to fish for food. We could fish for fun, which is what I do most of the time. It's different if you're fishing for food, right? you got to put food on the table. There's a little bit more desperation. Now you won't have to. We could cook bread just to smell it, just to put honey and butter on it, and just to lick it. I mean, right? If this guy's our king, we don't have to cook food except for fun. Jesus disappointed the crowd. 
Because what they had in mind was not what God the Father had in mind. And you need to understand, Jesus is not seduced by false praise. He's never seduced by false praise. And if you look at Matthew and Mark's um, version of this, it says that after Jesus, uh, before Jesus went to the mountain, he, dis- he tells his disciples, actually it says he compels his disciples to get in the boat. Get in the boat now and go to the other side of the lake. You see, there's only one kingmaker that Jesus was interested in in pleasing, and that was God the Father. So he goes and he spends seven to eight hours in the presence of his Father, renewing his vision. And his vision and his assignment was this. He was to become a savior, not a king. Now, when, um, when the people find him the next day, uh, this is, uh, we're, we're talking about the next day. We'll talk about the, the walking on the water. That comes in here in just a minute. But the next day they come and they find him. Jesus, when did you get here? And here's what he says to them in John 6, 27. Do not work for food that spoils. He said, the only reason you're here is because you got your bellies full yesterday. He says, don't, don't focus on having your belly full, but for food that endures to eternal life. So there's more than just physical, Jesus says. Which the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. This is a messianic title. Everybody knew he was claiming to be the Son of Man that was in Daniel chapter 7. And everybody in the Jewish uh, uh, nation knew that referred to the Messiah. He said, the Son of Man, talking about himself, will give you this food that, that endures to eternal life. And then look at this. For on him, talking about Jesus, for on him, the Son of Man, God the Father has placed his what? Seal of approval. Too many of us are, are, are looking for the seal of approval for people. I love my wife. I love it when my wife is pleased with me. But I have to have my seal of approval from my heavenly father because I'm not going to stand before Janie whenever I die. I'm going to stand before Jesus and his father and and the Holy Spirit, and I want his seal of approval. So there may be times, (laughs) there's going to be times, if I seek his seal of approval, you're not going to like what I have to say. If you always agree with what I say, it means I'm probably not doing what my heavenly father has called me to do because did people always agree with what Jesus said? No, you cannot follow Jesus and do the things he did and say the things he told us in his word and have everybody go, oh, that's so nice. Doesn't work that way. Jesus wasn't interested in performing magic tricks and that's all they wanted. Give us another sign, give us another sign, give us another sign. Jesus said, "This is I gotta get you out of here. So he goes, sends them, he goes up to pray. Now, Ordinarily, it would take maybe an hour to two hours in this boat. And the boat is probably, I don't know, it's about from here to here long. They've actually found a boat that, uh, that was perfectly preserved in the mud of the Sea of Galilee that was probably very similar to the fishing boat of Jesus' time. So it wasn't a huge boat. It would take about an hour, maybe two hours, for them to row from where they were in that wilderness back towards Capernaum. And usually somebody, you know, I'm, I'm assuming guys with different guys would take the, the, the oars and row. Nobody wants, I mean, you got a bunch of men, right? Who's going to row the whole time? You get over here. Get your sorry tail over here. You row. I've been rowing. I'm sweating, right? So ordinarily it would take that. But, but on this night, a storm comes. And for seven to eight hours, they're fighting the waves. And they've only gone a couple of miles. And, and because the waves were so bad, they were scared. They fully believed they were going to die. And their fear was very real. So let me just tell you this. We have two kinds of fears. There's rational fears and there's irrational fears. Rational fears help us stay safe, right? Rational fears don't get too close to an edge of a cliff. You might fall off, right? That's a rational fear. Um, Look both ways before you cross the road, especially when you come out of the parking lot at New Life Community Church or you will be smashed, right? That makes sense. Look before you pull out. 
Turn off a breaker before you work on something electrical. I, I still have trouble with that one. I get bit almost every time because I'm just like, ah, I'll be careful. And then something happens and I'm like, ah, and Jesus is like, dummy, you know, but anyway, I do have a fear of electricity, but not enough to, to go find the breaker, especially here. We got so many breakers that are unmarked. I was knocked off a ladder one time years ago. I was out here and I was hooking up a light. I'm not kidding. I got knocked off the ladder and I'm flying through the air thinking, Jesus, here I come. You know, and, and I hit the ground and I thought, man, that was dumb. Next time I didn't turn off the breakers, but, but I'm not afraid enough yet. A rational fear would be don't get on the Sea of Galilee if there's going to be a storm because the, the mountains were so big that when it comes down, when a storm comes down off those mountains, we've asked, uh, I've read about it, and then I've actually asked some of the tour guides that, that take you out on the Sea of Galilee, have you ever been on the Sea of Galilee in a storm and their eyes get big and they say yes and you do not want to be on the Sea of Galilee. So that's rational. Irrational fears make sense only to the person who's afraid. The enemy of God doesn't care if it's a rational fear or an irrational fear. He wants to paralyze you so that you don't do what God wants you to do. Now, which type of fear did the, did the disciples have, rational or irrational? When they're in the waves, is that rational? Rational, all right. Check this out. In 1 John, we're in just John, but in 1 John he says this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. That means if you are afraid, you probably have taken your eyes off the Savior. Because think about this. The, the disciples, it made sense that they were afraid. These were fishermen. They lived on this lake. They knew they were about to die. But who told them to get in the boat? Who told them to get in the boat? Jesus did. If Jesus tells you to get in the boat and you get in the boat, who is responsible for your safety? Jesus, that's a good person to have and responsible for your safety. If Jesus tells you to get in the boat and you don't get in the boat, who's responsible for your safety? You are. No offense. I need a God bigger than you. I need someone more powerful than you, right? If Jesus says, get in the boat, you don't get in the boat, you're on the land, you're on your own. We just said that God created the heavens and the earth, and the Bible tells us that everything was created through Jesus Christ. I want him in charge, not you in charge. No offense. Actually, get offended. I don't care. I need a bigger God than you, and you need a bigger God than me. Now, when you read John's letter, you begin to notice that there's this connection between darkness and the absence of Jesus. Here it is in John 6, 17b. That just means the second half of the verse. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not joined them. Jesus on the mountain. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. I mean, just picture this, right? I've been thinking about this all week, but just picture it. And they were frightened because they'd never seen anything like this before. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Question, did Jesus know the storm was coming? Of course he did. Then why did he send his disciples out into danger? Well, let me, answer, let me, let me tell you something first before you put that up there, Gary. Waylon is four years old, and, and I love Waylon. He's like the light of our life. Janie and I were talking about this. We don't even know what life would be like without this, this boy. He is awesome. So he loves to tell stories. And, and so he'll, he'll be telling a story, and then he'll go, actually, with a W, actually, 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 this happened. And, and you'll say, did this happen? Actually, you know, he'll put his little finger up. Actually, you know, he's just telling you a thing. Then my favorite, though, actually is cute. But then he'll go, and also we. So also, also has a we on it. Also we, and also we, we did this. All right, so the reason I'm telling you that is 
actually, the reason Jesus, there's reasons that Jesus sent them into the storm. First is to rescue them from danger. We talked about this. The enemy of God was trying to stir up Jesus to become king in a way that God never intended. And Jesus said, get out of here now. Get in the boat now. So the first reason was to rescue them from danger. And also we, to test their faith. This is big. Many times God has to balance our faith so that we don't get proud, full of ourselves, and then fall on our faces. The scripture says over and over, pride goes before the fall. The scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he, the feeding of the 5,000 was actually the lesson, the 5,000 plus. This was the lesson, right? He taught them the lesson. The storm was the exam after the lesson. Sometimes, sometimes we're caught, actually a lot of times, we're caught in a storm because we disobeyed God. We're like Jonah. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, nope, hightail it this way. Storm comes up. They figure out it's Jonah. They chunk him over. A big fish comes and and bites him and and holds on to him, and, and he lives there. That's a good example of being in a storm because you disobeyed God. God said, go here. You go the opposite way. You're going to get in a storm. But sometimes we're in a storm because we're obeying Jesus. And we can be sure at that time he's praying for us and he will deliver us. Now, Matthew adds a little bit of detail. This is awesome. Matthew 14, 26, it says, When his disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. Never seen anything like this before. It's a ghost. This makes me laugh. They said and cried out in fear. Not only are we about to die, but ah, we're going to die in the presence of a ghost. Ah, If there were room, I imagine the disciples running around. Get out of here. Ah, We're going to die big, strong fishermen, right? We're going to die. There's not enough room in the boat. Boom, boom. Somebody got knocked out. Some folks today don't believe in God, but they believe in ghosts or they believe in aliens. I don't believe in, in ghosts. I don't believe in aliens. I believe there are demons who are fallen angels who can appear. The Bible says they can appear as angels of light to fool you. I've had a lot of talks with a lot of people who said, this happened in my house. What do you say about that? And I said, it's demonic. And, and if you're not afraid, if there's demonic things happening in your house, you should be. Because it probably means you threw open the door and said, demons, come on in. Because as a child of God, all authority and power has been given to his children to resist Satan and his demons. We don't have to be afraid of them. We don't have to be, if you're cocky, you're going to get nailed. But I do believe in demons that are running around. Ghosts are not dead people trying to run around and scare you. No. Scripture says when you die, you go to one of two places. You go to paradise, heaven with God, or you go to the place that's not paradise. We call that hell. And it's not, Jesus doesn't send people to hell. They choose hell when they reject Jesus. Now, let's not be too hard on the disciples because they'd never seen anybody walk on water. And I I was picturing this. Okay, waves, big waves. I've been on a boat one time. We were on a 16-foot boat that my brothers were saying, when this boat goes over, Doug, here's what you do. I was six years old, never forgotten that day. We're going up and down, and they say, you stay with the boat, we'll go get help. And I'm going, wow, you're going to leave me? You know, I'm six years old. You're going to leave me? So I'm thinking... How did Jesus walk on the water? Did he just, is it like the, you know, the escalator, the people mover in the, in the, in the airport? Because I think that's what happened. I think he's going from wave to wave. I think it's really cool looking. I don't know. But he's walking on water. They've never seen it before. Much less, they've never seen anybody walk on calm water. Six, eight foot waves. He's just walking along. 
They think it's a ghost. It's not a ghost. It's the Lord who could save them. Matthew 14, 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Why should they not be afraid? Because Jesus showed up. Darkness, absence of Jesus. When Jesus shows up, he rescues. Not a ghost. Yay. And I love this. When they realize it's not a ghost, look what they say. Then they were willing to take him in the boat. Get in the boat. Get in the boat. Get in the boat. Ghost, no! Oh, Jesus, get in the boat. And immediately, the boat reached the other, store, uh, the other shore where they were heading. So you need to know, Jesus, they discovered Jesus in the midst of their fears. And some of you are struggling with fears just as real as what the, the disciples faced on the Sea of Galilee. There's fear of cancer. There's fear of poverty. There's fear of COVID. There's fear of rejection, fear of failure. These fears torture us, cripple us, paralyze us. But if we learn the lesson of the miracle from this story, we will never look at the storms of our lives the same way ever again. And actually, there's several miracles involved here. Jesus walks on water, stormy water. So did Peter. We're going to read about that in just a minute. Jesus stilled the storm. As soon as he got in the boat, the storm stopped. And instantly, the boat ends up on the other side of the shore. And Jesus was fulfilling right before their eyes the 23rd Psalm. Because the day before... They were in the wilderness, and he said, have the people sit down before he fed, them, fed the 5,000 with the fish and the loaves. He said, have them sit down because there's plenty of grass there. So he was, he was leading them beside still waters. He was, he was having them sit down in, in green pastures. And then when he gets in the boat, he immediately stills the storm. They're where they need to be. He is the good shepherd. See, Jesus knew the crowds were just looking for a miracle for a sideshow, and he wasn't interested in entertaining them. He wanted to save them, and, and you need to know this. Any ministry that is about the show and not about the Savior is dangerous. We, uh, before we ever bought this building, we were looking around town. Every building that came for sale, we were looking at. And me and a couple of, of our folks at the time went down and looked at this one building, and, and this man says this, the man, the pastor, he's, he's selling it, and, and I don't even remember how it came up, but this is what happened. He said, the healing of God is in these hands. And he said, we have healing in that building right there. And you just have to understand, I'm skeptical by nature. And I'm like, dude, if you had healing in there on a regular basis, you're not going to be needing to sell the building because you don't have enough people coming. Nobody else in town will have anybody in their services because everybody's going to be coming to your place. But, and then when he told us how he prayed and healed, and he, anyway, he told us even the wrong body part. And we we're looking at each other going, that's not even possible for you to touch anyway. I was just like, mm, no, I don't think so. His ministry was about show, not the Savior. See, Jesus' ministry was just the exact opposite of everything that ever happened in the world before, especially the Romans. Here's the Roman Empire. Their theme was bread and circuses. 93 days a year, they would have circuses to try to entertain the people at government expense. Sounds a lot like the U.S. government, but I won't get off on that to try to keep the, the people happy. This was the formula. Let's give them a loaf of bread and let's entertain them. Let's see something else. They said it was cheaper to entertain the crowds than it was to fight them or put them in jail. Jesus wasn't about that ministry. Do not be deceived by people seeking popularity through their association with Jesus because Jesus himself in Matthew 7, 21 said, some people said, Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name? 
Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we work all kinds of signs and miracles in your name? And Jesus said to them, Jesus said to them, depart from me for I do not know who you are. The enemy of God counterfeits everything of God to try to deceive you. See, a lot of people, they don't want Jesus as Lord. Go ahead and put that up there. They don't want him as Lord because Lord means boss. Lord means he gets to tell me what to do. What people want is, let's have Jesus as, I don't remember, fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to burn. Let's get him as fire insurance. Jesus says, nope, Lord or nothing. Now, if he's Lord, fire insurance. But you don't get fire insurance without Lord. Some people will say this, I want him to be my healer. I don't want to serve him. God, why haven't you healed me? God's like, I don't even know you. Why would I heal someone I don't know? Some people say, I want God as my provider. Where's my stimmy check? Give me another one, God. Give me another one. Give me another one. Give me, give me. That's what we talked about last week. That's what they wanted. Give me more food. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Some people want Jesus as the one who rescues me from all of the trouble I've gotten myself in. How dare you, God, not rescue me? We don't want God. We want a genie. Your, my wish is your command. Now, here's what I want to say to encourage you today. If you're in a storm, number one, God sees you. I love this about our God. And this comes, we got to go to Mark to find this. So we're putting all of these different stories together. Same story, but they're from different eyewitnesses. What it says in Mark 6, 47, 48a. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. Check this out. He did what he saw the disciples. How can he see the disciples? He's on a mountain. He wasn't by the edge of the shore. He's on a mountain. They're in the middle of the, they're three to four miles out. How did he see him? He's God. And the timeless principle is he sees you in the storm. He sees you struggling. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. It is so much more important that God sees me than I see God. As long as he sees me, I'm okay. See, there's a couple of words we talk about, theological words. One of them is omniscience, and omniscience means he knows everything. If he knows everything, God knows all the details in advance. Check this out. God's not like the weatherman. Has the weatherman ever been wrong? <laughs> yeah. Jesus knew when the storm would hit. He knew the velocity of the winds. He knew the direction and timing of every gust. Check this out. If, he's all, if he knows everything, he knew exactly how much each board in that boat could take before it busted apart. And he also knew how much each disciple's heart could take before they gave up hope. Jesus knew. Because he always knows. It's who he is. There's another word, omnipotence, and it means all-powerful. If he's all-powerful, it means the strength of the storm was allowed and controlled by the will of the one who was Lord of the storm. Nothing can happen to you that your heavenly Father doesn't know about. It's Father-filtered, which means if you're getting battered right now, you need to not worry about the storm itself. You need to worry about the Savior. When did the, when did the, the storm stop and, and the boat get to shore? When? When Jesus showed up. I don't know if you've noticed this, but very often, God lets you go right to the edge where you're about to go under before he shows up. Y'all notice that? God didn't show Abraham the ram for the sacrifice 
when he started his three-day journey with his son out into the wilderness. God didn't show Abraham the ram in the bush when he built the altar and when he bound up his son. Even when he laid his bound up son on the altar, God didn't show him the ram. It wasn't until he pulled the knife up and he was willing to sacrifice his son that Jesus said, that God said, Abraham. And he says, here I am. And he says, there's a ram. Now, you can have problems with that. We can discuss that. But I think God was testing him. And God says, now that I know that, that your son is not God to you, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. It wasn't until the nick of time that God showed up. And look where Matthew and Mark, they tell us when Jesus shows up. Mark 6, 48. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. It is always darkest right before and right before. It's always darkest right before God shows up because right about the time you're like, I, I'm done. The Savior says, now I have, where, have you where I want you. Now I can work in your life. Spiritual blessings have to be balanced with burdens and battles. I like that term, that phrase. Spiritual blessings must be balanced with burdens and battles. Otherwise, we become pampered or spoiled, rotten children instead of mature children of God. And God's looking for fully devoted, mature children of God. So if you're in a storm, he sees you. Second thing, if you're in a storm, God leads you. Obedience, here's the, that word we don't like. Obedience often puts you in the path of a storm. Some people mistakenly believe that if others are in a storm, it's proof that they are out of God's will. I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, well, if you would do this and this and this, had a man tell me last summer that if you'd done this and this and this, you wouldn't be in that storm. I said, you have no right to speak into my life. You've not walked in my shoes. You've no right. And I said, I do not accept your opinion of my life. Jesus was led into the, into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. There's only two reasons to be in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit leads you, or you've led yourself there. But be very careful telling someone else, you chose to be in the wilderness. You chose to be in the storm. Because it's not... Last I checked, you're not the Holy Spirit. There's only one of those. And when I'm really kind of feeling spunky, I'll say, I didn't know you were the Holy Spirit. Let me bow down and worship you. There's one. And generally what the Holy Spirit does is when you see someone in a storm, the Holy Spirit makes you want to come up beside them and walk with them through the storm or even sit in a stormy boat and just weep. Until Jesus shows up. Sometimes our greatest trials come when we obey God's commands. Now, here's a question that, that you should ask. What if I'm in a storm by my own making? Jonah learned that in a storm of his own making, God didn't forget about him. God was watching him. God was praying for him. And he was waiting until he came to his senses. It took a big fish. We don't know exactly what fish that was. It's big enough that he could live for three days in there. But the Bible says when he's in the deep, in the middle of the fish, he comes to his senses. Reminds me of the prodigal son. When did he come to his senses? We talked about this in our men's group the, the other night. It's when he was in the pit. 
That's when he came to his senses. That, wasn't in, that was another group we were in. I got too many groups going on. Until you come to your senses, he will allow you to go through the consequences of your sin alone. When you confess, the Bible says he is faithful and just and he'll forgive you of your sins. He will not wipe out the consequences. You suffer the consequences, but he's promised he'll walk through the consequences with you. And bonus, ding, 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 ding. He will bring brothers and sisters in Christ who will walk with you until you're healed and until God is glorified. And then they get to sit back and just praise God when you reach out and tell someone else, here's what God brought me through. I get chill bumps. That's the kingdom of God. But he's going to wait until you come to your senses. If you're in a storm, he can deliver you. Oh, I love this part of the story. All right, we're going to fly through this. Let's talk about Pete. Matthew 14. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Love this. Jesus like, come on. And then I think Peter's like, oh, no. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, remember that phrase, but when he saw the wind, we're going to come back to that, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. One of the shortest prayers in the Bible, right? He didn't have time for our father, right? He was going to drown. Oh, heavenly It was, Lord, save me. There are times when that's the appropriate prayer, but not if that's your only prayer. If you pray that prayer every day, you don't know Jesus. This should be the exception, not the rule, right? Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Okay, got to tell you this. This is one of my favorite parts of this story. In English, it's four words, you of little faith. In, in Greek, it's actually one word, and the one word is translated little faith. It's a nickname. He reaches down, oh, little faith, why did you doubt? Lifts him back up on the water, oh, little faith, why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, if Jesus tells you to walk on water, you better walk on water. Jesus tells you to get in the boat, you need to get in the boat. Peter was actually safer on the water because Jesus said, come on, than he would have been in the boat, right? You with me? You're safer where Jesus tells you to go. It was when Pete notices the storm that he begins to sink. Let me, question, when did the storm start? How many hours had they been fighting the storm? Seven to eight hours. So the storm's going on. They can't get anywhere. We're going to drown. Ah, ghost. We're going to die in the presence of a ghost. Storm, 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 storm. Jesus comes and he says, it's me. If it's you, tell me to come walk on the water. The storm's still raging. He gets on the water. Then he notices the storm. Are you kidding me? Seven to eight hours. Storm, 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 storm. Oh, there's a storm. I'm going to sink. Jesus, save me. You're laughing because you know you've, you and I have done that. Now, two quick observations. Number one, I'd rather be called little faith than no faith. Because that's what you can call every other disciple in the boat. We don't talk about Bartholomew walking on water because he didn't. James and John, the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, none of them. They're no faith. I'd rather be little faith than no faith. I'd rather try something big than do nothing. When Jesus rebuked Peter, it wasn't for attempting too much. It was for trusting too little. 
I'd rather attempt something bold for God. I'd rather go to Haiti 10 times. I've been there 10 times. I'd rather go to Belize twice. Once when we couldn't go to Haiti, last second, we go to Belize, not having a clue where we'd go. But we believe God called us. I'd rather go to Israel. I've been to Israel twice. And by the grace of God, I'll go this summer. And by the grace of God, I'll get to go again next year with Praying Pelican. I'd rather go to Hope Station on a Sunday morning with 52 of my friends from New Life Community Church. I'd rather go to Elkhart in a few weeks and pass out some food and have a barbecue and just tell people, hey, this church over here, they've got a place for you. I'd rather be little faith that tries something big for God than the guys who stay in the boat and criticize. Why are you doing that? Because Jesus said, come. Why are you sitting on your butt? Why are you criticizing people who are on the water? Do something for God or shut up. Whether your storm is your health, your finances, your job, your relationship, no matter how painful it is, Jesus will come to you in the storm if you, come, if you look for him. See, Peter, Peter realizes Jesus is the Lord of the storm. He realizes the waves are more powerful than he is, but not Jesus. And Peter knew that Jesus was the Lord of nature. So he says, let me come to the water. And for a second, Pete got to walk on water. No one else got to except Jesus. That's awesome. Then he failed because he looked away from Jesus. So here's the point. Concentration on Jesus is the key to overcoming your storm. A few seconds of separation from Jesus, and you will sink. And if you don't cry out, Lord, save me, you're going under. So the strength of Satan or the intensity of the storm is not what causes us to fail. Unbelief is always what causes us to fail. Show a little faith. Tony Evans tells the story of when he and his wife were on a cruise to Alaska, and I can relate to this. Janie and I got to go with my parents one time. They encountered high winds. The captain told the passengers that they were headed into high winds, so everyone was to prepare for the really bad seas. Later, as the boat rocked, and I'm telling you, when you're in, when you're in a storm, it's bad, but when you're in Alaska, you know, I've watched uh, Deadliest Catch, right? When there's a storm up there, it's a storm, and we were walking... It's so bad that when you're walking down the hall totally sober, it looks like you're drunk because you're bouncing off walls. It is that bad. All right, so Tony's wife got angry and sent a message to the captain. Now, I don't think this would work for me and Janie because we're not to the stature of Tony Evans and his wife, Lois. But she sends a message to the captain and says, why did you take this ship into the storm? Could we not have waited? The message was received by an assistant who promised to relay her concerns to the captain and get back to her. Moments later, the phone rang in the room and the assistant said, I relayed your concerns to the captain and he told me to tell you, relax, because this ship was built with this storm in mind. When Jesus is your Lord, you're in a boat headed for the other side. This world is not our home. Along the way, you're going to have some waves. It's going to batter you, but he knows. He, he knows before those waves hit. He knows the boards on your boat are creaking. He knows you may be taking on water, bouncing up and down, but this ship was built with this storm in mind. If the Lord of the wind and the waves, the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of angel armies is on your side, why are you so afraid? Perfect love drives out fear. So we got to concentrate on Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that you see us in the storm, you're watching us, you're praying for us, and you're waiting for us to come to our senses. Help us to come to our senses today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.